Hey, it's Antonio, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen? And on today's podcast, I sat down with Daniel Teroff, a.k.a. the Coffee Jazz Dude. Dan and I did our undergrad at Carleton together in music way back, like 15-plus years ago. Um, I find him to be a really interesting person. He's just very jovial and funny, and it just comes very naturally. Aside from being a great jazz musician, he's got quite a musical comedy styling and sort of an interesting perspective on the world generally, and it really shines through in this podcast. He also gave me some songs of his that we're going to play, one of them making its internet debut on this podcast. So talk about a bonus for my listeners. I hope you enjoy his music and our chat. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? We could run for an hour. We could run for 20 minutes. We could run for a day and a half. I mean, I think people would start to get concerned after about the three hour mark. No, I don't think think that's about in COVID time. People need things to do. We'd be doing them a favor. Do people need things to do? I mean... It's been my experience that at the beginning of pandemic times, we were really worried that we were going to be bored and like everybody was rushing out to go make sourdough bread. And then somewhere I would say around the summertime, we realized that we were desperately keeping ourselves as busy as we were pre-pandemic times. It's just now we're doing it in our basements so we don't get to go out and have lunch with people and drive places. Oh, that's not what I meant exactly. I mean, uh, obviously, there's no shortage of things to do. It's not a question of do people need a surplus of things to do. There's lots to do. But I meant, like, um, on a more basic level, do people need things to do? Because people get bored really easily. So, yes, if someone needed to listen to us for a day and a half, we're here for those people right there. That's all I was saying. That's really magnanimous of you. I love that. That's a beautiful sentiment. So how have you been doing, Dan? It has been, I think I'm going to say, going on about 10 years since I last saw you in person. So maybe even so longer than for... maybe even longer than that. I've been great. I, uh, I've been doing music here and there. Uh, I focused a lot on creative writing as well. That, uh, that took up a lot of my creative time. What kind of creative writing are you working on? Uh, I don't know. Or have you worked on? No, no, I... I uh... I worked on a lot of horror. I found this Reddit, um, this Reddit page called No Sleep, and it's a place where people can post their own original horror stories. And I just wrote one for fun, and people really enjoyed reading them. I got a lot of positive feedback, so I wrote a handful of horror stories. Uh, one I got picked. One got picked sorry, go up by uh, this YouTube channel called Creeps McPasta, and it actually uh, is one of his most successful videos. It's called My School is Torturing Children. It got translated into uh, German, Czech, and Romanian. Romanian was oh my with my goodness. permission, but German and Czech was without my permission. I was fine either way. The funny thing is that um, the Czech fan site that translated my story, it got removed over a copyright dispute that I never made. So, so, so someone's making copyright disputes in my name in, uh, in the Czech even, Republic. I have so many questions, and yet every time I'm about to jump in, there are yet more questions. I love this. So I've, I've never read No Sleep. I've been on Creepypasta. I think that's the kind of the famous horror story subreddit. But but what is what is this? You know, I don't know how long the story is. If you want to recant it or give me like the the Coles Notes version, what is what is your uh, 
school is torturing sorry what was the title my school, my school is, is torturing, torturing children so uh very I mean, very it, long story short it's about um there are three parts to it creeps mcpasta that's his name uh it took him three it took him 30 minutes to read the first two parts so it's about a half hour read and uh long story short it's about uh a student who uh accidentally witnesses his own science teachers performing what later turns out to be medical experiments on students to develop a vaccine for cancer he's unaware of the the whole vaccine aspect so he blows up the school and the teachers have to start from scratch on a new school possibly yours oh god and now was this made during pandemic times um it was it was written before pandemic times but um i didn't actually publish the last part until during pandemic so so you kind of i don't want to say visionary i mean that's that word gets bandied around too much but you sort of pre you were writing up a vaccine story before we were all writing a vaccine story in our mind is what i'm getting at yeah i guess i was but to be fair i wasn't the first guy to do it either i'm sure there's a doctor who no. had it already i'm sure there was and i mean i saw the latest star trek discovery and it's like you know, they kind of hit the nail on the head with this, like, dystopic future where nothing is the way that we thought it would be. And it's like, ever, I think the idea of dystopia and horror more generally, um, it really appeals to us in, in COVID times because a lot of us feel like there's some sort of a morality lesson at play during, during this, this, this time that we can't make sense of. And I always feel like a good horror story kind of has like a moral element, a moralizing element to it underneath. Fair? Maybe, maybe not. There's nothing wrong with looking for a deeper meaning in anything, but I definitely think some people are taking their uh, dystopic science fiction a little bit too seriously. They're uh, losing the fine yeah. line between just the story and what's really going on. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I not every not everything in the Hunger Games needs to be uh needs to be an allegory for something in real life. Like I I grew up watching The Running Man and I don't think, you know, game shows are evil is the most cogent moral lesson I can take out of that. No, I mean like uh, unless you're going to make a a dystopic film where Alex Trebek is the bad guy and if you get your jeopardy questions wrong that's it for you and your family. Unless you're going to go that far then yeah, what you just said. <laughs> fair, 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 fair. But um but so so how so I hope you've been keeping well during uh during pandemic times. It's I guess like you said uh, boredom is probably uh, a big factor for a lot of people, but uh, it sounds like you've been keeping your yourself occupied and busy. I'm just really lucky that I'm easily entertained. Um, we live the modern age is a wonderful time to be alive. Where you can listen to music anytime you want to. You can watch pretty well anything on YouTube that you want to. All you need is an internet connection, and if you don't have an internet connection, you, you could read a book. There's lots of things to do in the modern age. That's a very glass half full attitude. I really I appreciate someone speaking some optimism in our in our sort of current predicament. Does that come naturally to you or uh, is that something that you have to work on to keep a positive attitude? It does come naturally to me. I'm just very lucky that it comes naturally to me, I guess. I have bad days like everyone else, but they're much fewer and farther between my uh, my optimistic days. I mean, like you spilled your coffee. I, I 
at least you had a coffee yeah. to begin with. That sort of idea. Yeah. That that's that is very that is very optimistic. I can if I've spilled coffee recently and I can tell you that oh at least I had a cup of coffee is nowhere near any of my my thoughts at that point. There's usually a lot of swearing. <laughs> Like I've got to, I've, I've got to clean up this stain. There's a burn on my hand, and I gotta keep the kids away from it because they want to see what Dad's doing and why he's yelling and swearing so much. And and I I just can't muster that kind of energy with spilled coffee. But that's just you have respect for the coffee. Nothing wrong with that at all. You have to respect your coffee. I don't know if it's respect. I think I've just you know. I don't even know that I'm an angry person, but I feel like that's just a lot of latent frustration that just kind of boils over in those little moments that's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. But but I, I'm, I'm enjoying hearing this perspective of yours. Um, we first met, I'm just trying to remember in the Wayback Machine, it would have been the fall of 2005, back in African drumming class in September at Carlton. I'm amazed you remember and the class. Yeah, the dates, the date lines up for me, of course. Yeah, I guess it would have to be because it, yeah, it was I had Mondays, the, first thing Monday morning. Monday morning, 8.30 a.m. That's right, because didn't like another class before us use that as a time to get drunk and high? And so they moved it to first thing in the morning to... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think it was the it was either the class before us or the one before them that would go to Mike's place, the campus bar at... Uh, at uh, Carlton, get rip roaring drunk, and then go to their African drumming class at five thirty in the evening. And then when they realized this, the school decided, well, we're gonna move it to eight thirty a.m. on a Monday. So you're either going to be sober or be a very, very motivated <laughs> alcoholic in order to uh, to continue to be sauced for that class. So I I hate getting up at eight thirty on a Monday morning, but now that I have kids, I'm usually up at uh, four a.m on a monday morning so it's actually gotten worse the older i've gotten i wonder if uh, other classes had that issue as well i can imagine philosophy classes got really rowdy uh if they were in the evening or afternoon there was one course that was always full you could never get into it and it was called the history of alcohol and I believe it was a yeah it would have been a histories course, not a classics course, or it might have been cross listed in classics. I don't know. And the thing was, it was a very interesting, from what I've heard, because I never took it. It was a very interesting kind of cultural anthropology meets history meets sociology kind of look at how alcohol use proliferated over human history, how it spread across the world, the different forms that it took and the ways in which it was shaped by culture and the ways it shaped culture. And I think that's very, very interesting. But the problem is you have a course listed as the history of alcohol. All right. And then what happens is all the bros decide that like, this is the ultimate frat house class to take. So they would just get really good and liquored up and then show up to class and fail. As best I can tell, that's that's what happened with, with that. So I think that one would have probably given African drumming a run for well, its money. Well, that's the fault of uh, the university for offering that course. I mean, like, yeah, you've got a bunch of people who need university degrees and their job is to 
organized what's going to go into a university curriculum, they should have known better. That's definitely the fault of the university. Does anyone need a university degree? I mean, I've been philosophizing on that a lot lately. Oh, man. I, uh, I don't know if I should give my answer. I might piss a lot of people off. Please. I need, I need some, some fire on here. What, what do you think? I have three of them. So, I mean, you would think I'm very much on the you need a university degree side, but I, I definitely am kind of teetering on the fence. So what say you, Mr. All T right. Uh, short answer, no. Long answer, it depends on what you want to do with your life and what opportunities are available to you. If this was a thousand years ago and you're uh, being alive the next day depended on you toiling your fields, you wouldn't have time for a university degree. It would just be a waste of your time and energy. But True. today, um, anytime you want food and, you, and you've got 20 bucks, you can go to the supermarket. Now you've got time on your hands. And if you want to do something to help yourself or help other people, why shouldn't you get a university degree? The only catch is they're so, if you'll pardon me, freaking expensive. <laughs> I was going to swear, but I held back. They are expensive. <laughs> You, you could have sworn if you wanted to, but you know what? If we can keep it clean, that's great, too. And you make a good point. I mean, historically, I think, you know, somebody said in 1800, 75% of the human population was dedicated to farming and growing food. And now it's something like 1% of the world's population, especially in developed countries. So the rest of us are kind of left here trying to figure out, well... You know, there's not a lot of manufacturing anymore. You know, there's a couple of really technical jobs designing, you know, power plants and infrastructure and highways and Internet and that sort of thing. But then the rest of us kind of feels like no one really knows what we're doing and why we're doing it, you know. And there's a lot of people who are corporate lawyers, who are, you know, business consultants, who have MBAs and... I've been reading this book by David Grevin called Bullshit Jobs, and it just talks about this modern sort of late 20th century phenomenon where there's a lot of people who just go to university because you have to go to university. That's just a thing that you do in the 20th century, and you go and then you get some kind of degree, quote unquote. So... You know, what is what is the actual utility? I mean, I think historically people went to university because they wanted to be part of the academy. They wanted to preserve books and they wanted knowledge for knowledge's sake. I don't know that that's the case these days. I think people are going there with a goal in mind. And that goal is to get some kind of a six figure. Oh, absolutely. Job. Like um, who who doesn't want to earn six figures, live in a fancy house, never have to worry about where your next meal is coming from, take two month vacations every year. That's like that's a dream everyone has, but not everyone can do that. Otherwise, uh, society just doesn't work because like if someone's going to be at the top, then a lot of people have to be at the bottom and everyone wants to be at the top. But not everyone can be at the top. So people are stuck at the bottom, but they paid for university education and they think that being at the bottom is beneath them. And it's a very frustrating uh, time for those people. That is interesting, though, because, you know, if, with that sort of realization, perhaps people should say, well, you know, given the fact that not everybody can sort of sustain that level and given that we're all kind of fighting in a rat race, maybe we should all kind of declare an armistice on this system and just have a way where 
everybody just gets as much as they need and we all try to live a comfortable existence. I don't know. And maybe that sounds a little too utopian. Nothing wrong with the utopia. I'm not here to spark a revolution or anything. Like, uh, I don't think I could if I wanted to, but... uh, all I'm all I'm saying is that there's a few things, uh, there's a few societal hangups that probably will not disappear within our lifetime related to the education system. The first time I met you, and this this relates to last week's guest, Don Zanklin, and I had a great time with her. And from her stand up, I was introduced to the term blurred, which it turns out she didn't come up with. I thought she came up with it. It's a portmanteau of black and nerd. And it's apparently an interesting cultural signifier for her. The first time I met you, you introduced me to the term "juicy," <laughs> which you used to self-describe yourself. Uh, Do you remember this? Vaguely. It definitely sounds like my sense of humor. <laughs> Saying that you are both Jewish and hippie. And I've never heard it since. Like, Jupy, I mean, isn't that Gwyneth Paltrow's company? Oh, I have no idea. I uh, couldn't tell you the first. No, that's guy. Goop. Goop, not Jupe. But anyway. But so, so Jewish hippie. And I mean... You know, a lot of people sort of call themselves hippie in a very kind of ironical way, but I do get the sense that you're very much a free spirit and that you you live in this, you have this very jovial mindset that 15 minutes in, I think people have, have very much gone. Have you always been that way? That's a, I've never actually thought about it, to be perfectly honest. Um, when I said Jupy 10 years ago, I probably had very little clue to what I was actually talking about. I mean, I had no idea what hippies actually did in the 60s when it was really relevant to be a hippie. All hippies were to me 10, 15 years ago were people with awesome fashion sense. And I thought, wow, that's way better than anything else I'm seeing. I want to look like that. But fair, fair, fair. Free spirit. Uh, I've never I've honestly never thought about it before. It's an interesting question. I'm just happy. I'm just happy to be here. I could like I could have it so much worse and I don't. And that's good enough. So for those who don't really know your background, and to be perfectly honest, my my Dan Taroff story begins in undergrad. Like what is what is your how did you get into music uh, how, and creative writing for that matter? How did you how did you get into the the arts? What's uh, what was your origin? well music? Uh, I can't remember a time when I didn't know how to play the piano. My dad, who is uh, the very uh, the very talented Ottawa piano player, Larry Teroff, uh, he taught me piano from a very young age, like at three years old. In my very earliest memories, I already knew how to play a little bit of piano. And he was a huge influence on me. Him, uh, him and my mother, they were both very encouraging with music. As for creative writing, um, what actually happened with that was I saw an episode of Garfield, the cartoon in the 90s, with Lorenzo Music voicing Garfield. <laughs> Lorenzo Music, I remember that. He was the ultimate. Bill Murray can't hold a candle, that guy. Uh, to be honest, I only knew him as Garfield. Apparently, he had like a huge sitcom career before being on Garfield. He was uh, he played um, oh, this gonna drive uh, Rhoda. He was on Rhoda. He played like um, some guy on a show called Rhoda. But anyway, I saw an episode of Garfield, and Garfield, he's a museum curator, and he's telling the tale of a famous diamond. And I said, hey. I can tell a story about a famous diamond, and that was the first time I ever tried to write something, and I just kept writing since that day. I would have been eight or nine years old. That's wild. Do you remember the story you wrote about uh, a My parents definitely diamond? do. They remind me constantly about it. <laughs> it was... It's great that you have someone reminding um, you about it. Was no. it a good story? Well, it was an eight-year-old, nine-year-old story. Really. It was like that. No different from any other story an eight-year-old, nine-year-old. Oh, it could have been right? a good... Touché, touché. 
But I mean, that's yeah. How many people can say that they were inspired by not just Garfield? Because I feel like a few cartoonists are probably moved by Jim Davis, but like Garfield, the cartoon series. I mean, that's got to be that's got to be up there with origin stories. I'm 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 really intrigued about. Oh, that. have you seen um, Garfield minus Garfield? Yes, yes. And this is one of those times when I'm upset I don't have a a visual component to my podcast. So they basically just erase Garfield from these old Garfield strips and all of a sudden John Arbuckle is just a sad <laughs> loner talking to himself, yeah, right? More or less. Um optimistically I would call him a man in the middle of an existential crisis or a sad loser. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like like I've been watching Mr. Robot lately. I'm almost finished the last season. I'm really into this kind of like weird dystopic uh computer hacker that's kind of seeing things and there's just really strange things going on and i feel like garfield without garfield is is kind of the comedic version of that just this guy who's going around and he's talking to no one in particular because there's just no one around and it's like it's it's kind of schadenfreude because it's funny because he's so well, sad looking, not, well right? the uh, tragedy is there are lots of people like that already so it's actually a, a window into a world you might not not be uh privy to and maybe that's a good thing i guess yeah yeah i guess but you wouldn't normally like if you knew about someone who just lived alone and was lonely <laughs> you would be like ha, 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 he's organizing his socks what you a loser hope, you can hope i wouldn't feel like that I mean, I, I don't think I'd be like that. I'd like to think not. But in the context of the comic, it's hilarious. Actually, you bring up a really good point reason. there. Everyone wants to say that uh, they're not like that, but you never really know until until the moment of truth. My favorite, my favorite anime manga. It's called Death Note, and that's exactly what that's about. Uh, I'll inform your fans uh, who have not read Death Note. Uh, it is a manga which is japanese comics from the early 2000s which was made into an anime and then the americans made a decent ish movie rendition and it's about a it's a supernatural um fantasy story about a high school student who gains the power to kill anyone he wants to just by writing their name down and so he decides he's going to vanquish the world of criminals and turn the world into a peaceful place but he becomes corrupted by power, and then he starts killing criminals, not to make the world a peaceful place, but to stop uh, the police from arresting him, and it gets very complicated. Ooh. Like, I can see oh, why that would be interesting. So what is, it that what is it that corrupts him? Is it just desire for, like, power I think and his, I think his own paranoia gets the better of him. Um, they never really fully explain it. It's the sort of thing that you have to decide for yourself. Uh, if it's the sort of thing that you want to take the time to decide for yourself, it's very subjective. It's very interesting and um, conversation provoking. I highly recommend it to all your listeners. Death Note. Nice. I will. I will let each and every one of them know about that. I. Uh, but I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about manga. I want to talk about the stuff you're working on because the last few times that that we sort of interacted, I guess online, since we haven't seen each other in a while. Um, you were doing some some musical comedy stuff, if I remember right, and I I know I remember a little bit of this from my undergrad, but it looks like you're you're pursuing this uh, more rigorously. Yes, I am. Uh, 
whenever I write lyrics, I often tend to have a a comedic uh, element to it. At first, it was very, very on purpose, but it's sort of just become uh, a natural way of writing now. I was trying way too hard back when we knew each other. Like, I was really scared that if it wasn't funny, then then I didn't know what it would be. But yeah, sorry, that's a really long answer to a really short question. Yes, I write music comedy. No, that's a very good answer. That's a very good answer, and I like it. And it's interesting because I think all of us, especially in undergrad, kind of really forced our creativity and our persona. And it's kind of like, I don't know if it's a lack of confidence or if it's just a lack of not really knowing what your own voice is that you kind of have to, um, you know, superimpose things over there. It... uh it it is a little nerve-wracking when you're in your 20s and you're trying to be quote-unquote creative. Yeah, I guess it can be. like uh, You don't know it's nerve-wracking at the time, but yeah, it's totally nerve-wracking when you're trying to like uh, write a song. Or if you're not a musician, if you're trying to paint your masterpiece or write your masterpiece or... Uh, sculpt your masterpiece like you like there's that voice inside of you that's telling you it's not good enough you know what to do make it better you know the path and then when it's not doing what you want it to you just get more frustrated i i had michelle deborah on here about a month ago she's a poet here in ottawa and she had this line that kind of stuck with me where she's like when you're when you're doing art you have to ask yourself are you doing something because it's honest, it's what you honestly feel, or are you doing it because you want to be clever? And it was just such a like, whoa moment for me where it's like everything creative I've ever done is trying to show people how smart and clever I am. I don't know how That's to be That's very uh, penetrating. Yeah, I think I'm guilty of that too. Yeah, I think we're all guilty of that at a certain extent. And I think social media only feeds into that more. It's not a place where you want to be honest. It's a place where you want to be, you want to look like the smartest and the cleverest and the most deep. Yes. Yes. Uh, social media definitely is a good place for, uh, to stroke your ego. So what kind of, so what kind of music stuff are you working on now? What kind of, is there something that I know we, we discussed this. Um, both of us are dealing with, uh, with bedtime which means that if there's any loud noises, we're going to have to scramble and, and run for your life. But um, so, so what, so what I propose that we do, um, if you feel comfortable giving like a spoken word version of one of your songs, and then I'm going to react as though I heard the actual musical rendition. And then we'll just splice it in in in, in post production. It sounded so like a good idea until you do. mentioned that quote. What was her name? Michelle Michelle the poet Devereaux. Now now you're worried that well, it's going to be too clever and you not can just honest. react like on your own time if you want to. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll okay, react. Okay. I'll I will make it very convincing. I will I will I will describe the musical timbres that I haven't heard yet. And then after I actually put in the recording, we can see how close uh, this is I the, actually the newest was. song I've written. It's called Every Time It Hurts. Um, I recorded a quote-unquote live demo, just me and the acoustic guitar, and I overdubbed at the very end because, uh, well, it'll be obvious when you hear it because I, uh, it's one of those bluesy endings where you have a guy singing the verse and then a guy going, yeah, all right, one of those things. So this is Every Time It Hurts. Every time it hurts, things could always be worse. The hardest part of 
if it hurts real bad It's not the worst that you could have Because every time it hurts Things could always be worse The hardest part of sorrow Is feeling it tomorrow if it's the worst you've had before There's always room for something more Because every time it hurts Things could always be worse Fire could be more productive Lightning could be more conductive You could self-destruct and still The damage could be worse Every time it hurts, things could always be worse. The hardest part of stress is wishing there was less. Poison could be more corrosive. Everything could be explosive. Every time it hurts, things could always be worse. Things could always be worse Worse than they are Things could always be worse Far worse Things could always be worse Wow. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, we, we were already talking about somebody being glass half full and glass half empty. And I am kind of trying, I'm trying to decide what sort of direction a song like that takes, right? Like when you're saying things could always be worse, is that being is that being oh, optimistic, optimistic or sure. is that no, being I'm pessimistic? I'm trying to say uh, be grateful for what you have. Um, funny story about that. One thing I say to myself, uh, or uh, on a bad day, oh man, that day sucked. It could be worse. I could have no hands, and I look at my hands and I think about all the things I did with them. And so I was at a bar once uh, at someone's show, and someone had. had uh, a really bad day and i very almost said could be worse you could have no hands instead i said why was your day so bad my buddy lost his hand oh <laughs> yeah, my he, uh, god he well, i'm glad you didn't uh, say that he was working in one of the factories uh in the islands between ottawa and gatineau he's working at a factory there and he severed his hand right off it, modern medicine was able to reattach it to most of its former glory but yeah so he'd had a bad day about that because his buddy had just uh severed his hand and he had to deal with that take him to the hospital fill out piles of paperwork so i guess had you met the man who had his hand cut off that day you would have had to think of something even more worse to uh to be able to provide him with some solace oh, like God, it could no. be worse would never it could have been decapitated like he'd lost his hand he's got problems like i don't know what he's going through he'd probably think i'm just some jerk he'd go he'd say get this guy away from fair. me if i had a hand i'd punch him fair <laughs> fair fair i mean he had the other one he probably well i uh, like a left hook or something but no, I I, re I really like that. I mean, it, it just ties into everything we're talking about. And it's just, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. It's, I mean, it's a little bit goofy and fun. And I think that's what you're going for. But I, I you know, there there is really something to that. Things could always be worse. And, you know, people are maybe, I think that's a good life lesson right now in pandemic times. I think people need to be reminded of that. People have had it tough in pandemic times. Like, um, people have had it tough. I, uh, I don't know how tough everyone's had it. Someone, if I said that to just some guy I never met, maybe, maybe he really, really does have it tough and I should leave that guy alone. 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. You don't know where they've gone. You you don't. And so maybe in that regards, I mean, your song is really in the first person. You're talking about your own mindset and your own attitude. You can't change the world around you, but you can change your own mindset. Well, absolutely. That's like everyone's got their own point over. of view for a reason. Because like you, your point of view, your entire life choices took you to this moment. And like you're a pretty smart guy. Like uh, I don't know if your listeners have ever actually met you in person, but I can guarantee uh, your listeners that you're a very smart guy. So like if you're doing something, you've got a good reason for doing it. And lots of people are in the same boat too. Lots of people have really good reasons for doing the things they do. And that also means they might have good reasons for feeling shitty and pessimistic if something really, really bad happens. Like I'm not going to tell them not to be pessimistic, but if I can make that person feel better by listening to my optimism, then that's that's sort of the best I can go for and the least invasive I can hope to be as well. Yeah, and I think that's an important sort of tone difference between um telling somebody that things could be worse and demonstrating your own attitudinal adjustment if they and want letting people see that and being like huh maybe i could pr- exactly. if they want if if it's it's open to them if it resonates with them and if not well then you know what it's just a song you know you don't have to you don't have to put no, any of course not so what else what else you got for me do you have another one that we can uh we can listen to i don't want to I don't want to over avail myself of your 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 lexicon. This but is an I old one that I, I did. I recorded this five years ago, but uh, it never really uh, took off. So it's very likely that anyone listening to this, it'll be the very first time they've ever heard it. It's something you can't hear online right now. It's called hypocardriac. Well, it's making me panic. What's that noise? Well, I better go see a mechanic. I'm hearing squeals. I gotta check my wheels. I'm getting closer to a heart attack. That's what it's like when you're a hypochondriac. What's that noise? Well, it's giving me tension. What's that noise? Yeah, I better go check the engine I don't want a collision So I'm checking my transmission I'm getting closer to a heart attack That's what it's like when you're a hypochondriac It was so much easier when I was walking everywhere I had fewer worries I had fewer cares now everybody wants me moving fast Spend too much on insurance And I spend too much on gas Hey Dan, what's wrong with your car? Well, it would be faster to tell you what's not wrong with my car You see, I put the key in the ignition And it takes like five times for the engine to actually start up And then it's like Sputtering, spluttering all over the place The check engine lights flashing uh, It's leaking oil in a bunch of places The brakes barely work I have to step really, really hard for the car to even remotely slow down All the fan belts are squealing at the same time I got leaking in three of my tires The radiator's emitting smoke signals And I just don't know what to do Alright, alright, alright It's under control. I'll pop the hood and you lay down the solo. (laughs) 
Check the brakes. My time is nearing. I better check the power steering. I'm getting closer to a heart attack. That's what it's like when you're a hypochondriac. That's what it's like when you're a hypochondriac. Yeah, my upholstery is pretty terrible. Every time I sit down, a spring or something else pokes me in the thigh. There's really disgusting black smoke coming out of my exhaust pipe and the muffler. Well, it's not a muffler so much as it is a loudener. And you know what? Why don't we have the flying car yet? This is the modern age. We should have the flying car by now. I wouldn't be complaining half as much if we had a flying car. I'd be too busy marveling at the fact that we have a flying car. And when are our scientists going to design a road that doesn't need repaving every six months? I mean, come on. <laughs> so so this may well be a premiere online for people that haven't heard this before they might not have almost an, almost guaranteed <laughs> amazing i love it when i'm able to drop some uh some new music on here i haven't had any musical guests who've actually like given me samples so i'm 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 stoked that i'm able to show something for the good listener so what what was the inspiration for this? I mean, obviously the rhyming scheme is there. It's funny, <laughs> but like, do you have a car? Are you obsessed about the the repairs? Am I looking at that too literally? I had a two thousand eight Hyundai Accent that definitely uh, kept me up at night, wondering how am I going to pay for it this time. Uh, it uh, I uh, I learned how to fix cars on my Hyundai Accent because it was cheaper to do it myself. Like. Uh, I think I would have ended up paying what I paid for it in car repairs if I'd taken it to a garage all those times. So you can repair things. What kind of what kind of repairs can you do? I could. I mean... Uh, well, it's not like I'm good or anything, but like I can touch alternators. I can touch power steering. I can touch. Uh, I can touch rack and pinions. I can touch a few things without making them completely explode. That's that's impressive. That's a really. I I mean, I couldn't do any of that for the life of me. And I think on the very new cars that we have, sort of 2010 onwards, everything is hooked up to a computer anyway. I sort of feel like they're going the way of iPhones where they don't want you even servicing your cars. But um, I mean... That... Uh, yes and no. You are right that it's going full electronic. But what that actually means is that like everything that used to be mechanically actuated, like say um, if you drive... Um, if you drive a manual uh, transmission, for instance, you're manually shifting, and then you have the automatic uh, where the computer tells you when it's going to shift. Everything is going more in that direction, and all that actually means is that if something breaks, the computer can tell you what's broken instead of you having to look for it yourself, but someone still has to fix it most of the time. Well, I mean, then that sounds like a value add because at the end of the day, you know, I guess that means we don't have – you know, people used to say back in the day, you take your car in for a tune-up. And I guess now, if you have the computer looking at all the different variables and all different factors, there's no reason to quote-unquote tune up your car because everything is either going to be working well or you're going to be getting an error message. Well, you still have to make sure your fluids are uh, are changed at regular intervals, especially uh, the engine oil. Like, uh, 
have if you ever check the oil on your car the oil is either going to be like like gold and yellow like new oil or black and disgusting like old oil and what the black old disgusting oil uh does is it's not um as a viscous it doesn't have the same lubricating properties as fresh oil so it means that your gears can literally grind together grinding gears mean metal shavings which can get into important components and completely destroy your engine so that would be something that when you're taking your car for a tune-up they would definitely stop that from happening for example fair Fair. yeah you gotta get your oil changes but uh, car ownership is extremely stressful to come back to your song i mean when i think about sort of the convenience of i mean i live out in the burbs so there's no way around getting a car you need a car it's just it it is a way of life but uh when you look at the insurance and the gas and the repairs and the oil changes it is it is really an expensive luxury oh it totally is and 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 our whole society is kind of built around sort of we big roads for cars you know, I mean, from where I live, if I could bike places, at least when the weather is nice outside, I absolutely would. I mean, the one nice thing about pandemic times is that people are finally getting on board with remote work and meeting online rather than physically going to an office to have meetings. So at least that way, that's one part of my commute where I don't need to get in and out of a car to, to go places unless I actually really want to go somewhere. Oh, you're absolutely right. I'm surprised it took us this long to come to this being a thing. Like, I'm really surprised it wasn't a thing already. What with the technology available to nearly everybody? People had to come kicking and screaming because that's the way it always is, is a mantra in our in our world. It's people, people don't want to change things until the moment when they absolutely have to, because we've been talking about the digital office, the virtual office since the 1980s, you know, with a fax machine and a cell phone, you, you were supposed to be able to do your work anywhere you go. And then in the nineties, while the internet's coming out, you have email, you have a scanner, you know, why haven't we had this for 30 years? Well, now you know, when there's a stay at home order, I mean, people had to do different things. And now all of a sudden Rogers decided that all of its call center employees are going to be working from home. And they got rid of a lease on a 1.1 million square foot building out in Orleans. And they're like, nope, our guys are just going to work from home now. We found out about this VPN thing and we're good. So, I mean, it's wild that people can do that remote. But I think there are things like music, for example, that I can't imagine live music or live stand-up or, or or theater being a virtual performance. I just don't think it's going to be the same. Oh, no, definitely not, especially uh, especially the, uh, the theater and the stand-up because, like, at, those guys are, like, bouncing off the energy of the audience. It's kind of like a two-way experience. With me, with music, just because I listen to so much music, I have no problem with watching a guy in his basement playing guitar or piano. That to me, like I'm fine with that. But theater and comedy, you're right. You need an audience for that, like a live audience. One of my earlier guests on this podcast was our old friend from undergrad, Adam Sakely. I noticed uh, that. (laughs) Yeah, and Adam brought up this point that you know it's so hard to do online things because a lot of it is about the collaboration and i don't know about you i mean i play piano 
I mean, aside from singing in a church choir, I'm kind of a loner when it comes to all of my artistic projects. So, you know, I, maybe it doesn't make sense to me, but for a musician like him, he's like, no, I need that feedback. I need that kind of ebb and flow where like I'm doing something, the other guy's doing something different. I'm responding to that. We're kind of working in sync and tandem towards a shared artistic goal. And I don't know, maybe we can, maybe it's just a matter of the technology catching up, but I don't know if we can get there right now. I don't know if you can do that collaboration in cyberspace. Actually, that's a really good point. I take back what I said. I do, I do really miss live music. Like, uh, there used to be this bar I went to uh, in downtown Quebec City called uh, District Saint Joseph, and I missed that place so much. You would just go there, and it was like acid jazz funk night every Tuesday. I missed that place so much. I've been collaborating online with uh, a handful of singers. I was really lucky enough to do a song with uh, Gloria Guns from the Scary Bear soundtrack. And uh, Katie Elizabeth, who used to uh, be in a band with me called Electric Lizard. And uh, it's really fun working with them, but it's definitely a lot more time consuming to actually work on a project. Because if you're with someone in the same room, they could say, yo, that chord, it's just no good. You have to change it. But like when you're online, you hear them sing and you're like, yo, they got the note right. My chord was garbage. Now I have to fix that and make them record it again. It just takes more time. So they're they're sending you sort of recordings. You're not doing things in real time then. That's right. It's uh, not real time at all. It's uh, very, very, uh, very fun, but very time consuming. So maybe that is why why that live collaboration is so much better, because it's just so adaptable that you can you can change things on the fly where otherwise you need to scramble to try and put things together in the right way. Not to mention the just the skills that the other people have to offer. It just takes the music to bigger and better places. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's probably a level of intimacy to it too. I mean, I know this is an audio only podcast, so you, I, I, you know what? I was expecting you to have a camera cause everyone has a camera, but it doesn't really matter. But it's like even just missing that face to face that like, Oh, I remember what you look like. Or, Hey, I can see that you're smiling or that, you know, you've got a frown because I said something that I shouldn't have said. And now I need to adjust my, uh, my, what I'm saying. So I'm not so in your face or something like that. It's these very kind of subtle, um, cues that are kind of a layer below language that we maybe miss when we do things online. Oh my God, you're absolutely right. Uh, like it could be a, some like we've all seen those posts on Facebook where people are like at each other's throats because some words were misunderstood. Had that conversation happened in real time, the fight never would have happened because they would have known the intention and they would have known like, oh, I get it. That was sarcasm. <laughs> Internet fights are a very strange phenomenon, though, because I feel like people behave in a way where they're just avatars in space that they would never do if you were actually standing in front of them. And I haven't been able to figure out why. I don't think it's just tone. I just feel like people, when they're typing things, when they're shielded by their keyboard, I mean, the term keyboard warriors gets thrown around, but they just feel like a, they have a license to be a jerk. And, and, and a lot of kind of modern politics and epidemiology in this day and age and and sort of arguing about science just comes down to people being jerks well there's less consequence with an internet fight than there is with a real fight because i've noticed internet fights often happen between people who've never met each other like the 
So there's no consequence to their actions. The stranger's not going to punch them in the face. If that person was their best friend, that best that person's not going to stop talking to them. They've just had an experience with a stranger they'll never ever see again. So like, it's a free for all. There's no consequence that they know of. I've seen people fight with relatives on Facebook before. Yeah, and then you're just sitting there. Yeah, and then you're just sitting there, and you're like. You know, maybe you guys should call each other on the phone. Like, I don't know that everybody <laughs> needs to see this right oh, now. Oh, I know, right? I'm like, why on earth would you make that public? I even had a I mean, it's great entertainment for us, but... Uh... Oh, it, it, it really is. It's like watching a train wreck. But, I mean, you can't... You don't want to stare, but, you know, God but love you. you you're not, you're not going to look away. Like, you can't. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I know I know. I shouldn't stare, but there are times I do. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, so so when you're collaborating with these musicians, so like, are you working on the same kind of stuff like these, these, uh, these parody songs? Or is this more sort of in your 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 jazz background? Uh, a bit of both. Uh, like the music, the music is um, often like jazz rock. And uh, the lyrics, um, I care more about the melody, like, uh, what, what I mean to say is that the, me- the melody has to go with the music, but the lyrics might not always be what you'd expect for that kind of melody. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm sure that uh, someone else uh, could say that way better. You know what? I'm going to give your listeners the benefit of the doubt. You guys know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like it's it's I hear what you it, it's 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 driven by the melody. So you're saying is the melody first and foremost is what drives you and you're putting it together. And it doesn't necessarily have to be word painting for what the lyrics are. Not exactly. Like, well, sometimes, yes, but my pieces are mainly mood pieces. I'm trying to get a mood across. And Yeah, you're trying to get a mood across. And it doesn't require someone. Like, I remember once years and years ago, I was taking a class on CUTV. Shout out to our old alma mater, Carlton. And uh, it was like intro to Canadian law. And the, and the irony is that I dropped out of that class because it was boring as shit and I hated the problem. <laughs> and then I ended up going to law school at Kel Surprise. But, um, but, but before that, there was a show on Victorian poetry, a, a lecture. And this guy was talking about the Pleasure Dome of Kublai Khan. And it's apparently this like Victorian English poem. And he, he, the whole point was he's like, you're not trying to look at the text to understand it. It's not an essay. The words are deliberately chosen here because of the color and the feel and the syllabic structure. So it's supposed to sound very nice. It's supposed to sound pretty. It's supposed to fit in a certain color, but like the words are. Okay, like put in a musical example. Like you familiar with Tom Waits? No. No? No, I'm not. I'm actually very familiar with the the Kublai Khan poem, though, because Rush used it as inspiration for their song Xanadu. Is that right? Well, that would make sense. I thought uh, Olivia Newton-John did Xanadu. Different song. Same name, that, but different song. That's a really good song. If I could get the rights to that, I would make that my theme song. I've never actually listened to Olivia Newton-John Xanadu, only by Rush. I, I, I will send it to you. It is it is beautiful. If you love nice. disco, I mean, way hey. The movie Xanadu was about this guy in Australia who decides to resurrect a rundown roller derby rink in australia i think i'm getting that right a roller rink because it wasn't roller derby and these greek muses from antiquity 
come back to life to help him run this roller disco. And Olivia Newton-John is just singing and like helping to bring about this, you know, rinky dink suburban business in Australia. I'm probably missing the salient details, but like, that's a great song. But Rush is, Rush is pretty fun too. I, uh, I got a chance to see them while, while it was still possible. Thanks to my buddy, Corey Giordano. And I'm really grateful for that just because it's like one of those Canadian bands that I feel like you, you need to see. I've seen Russian concert four times. The first time I saw them, they were doing their laundry on stage. Actually, actually, yes. So, like, they do a few songs. Hold on, have to add the fabric softener now. Uh, do a few more songs. All right, let's start the dry cycle. And but it was actually t-shirts. So at the end of uh, the the laundry cycle, they would load t-shirt cannons and shoot them into the audience. Okay, so it's a bit. I like that. They're not actually. Oh, yeah. I was like, they're pretty wealthy guys. I'm pretty sure they could. They have people for that. But uh, that. I mean, I saw them. I had no. I really knew nothing about them. I mean, everybody kind of knows Tom Sawyer and like you know the the whole instrumental riff on it. But um, we. I went to see them at Blues Fest. This would have been in like 2012, and it's just really like the songs kind of exist in this level where like you're hearing the words, but you're like, I get the feeling that this is supposed to be mystical or there's some kind of lore here, but I'm not really sure what it is. And I don't need, I don't think I need to know what it is. I don't need to know the backstory. And then they have this like whole like cartoon kind of movie that goes along with it on their screens. And it's like, they very much try to make it like a multimedia experience. And it's just, it's, you know, I want to say it's weird, but I, I mean that in the in the most positive way possible. Well, that's like what separates Rush from the other guys. Like, uh, that's what you go to a Rush show for, to get something you wouldn't get at any other show. In this case, seeing uh, an extra video or getting a free t-shirt. Or at the other time, I saw that they were doing a rotisserie chicken on stage, but I think they gave the chicken to a homeless shelter at the end of that show. That's very wholesome. I like that. I can I can get behind that. No, my cousin, my older cousin is really into Rush and he probably saw them like a hundred times in concert. And he described them as like, imagine like the weird kids from the audio video club in high school just became ridiculously famous. <laughs> That's not the first time I've heard that. Yeah, that resonates with me every time. <laughs> yeah, I thought it might. I thought it might. Yeah, Rush is... Rush is Rush is truly something special. But uh, what what other what other kind of stuff do you listen to? What's what's like if, you know the cliche? If you're on a desert island, like what albums are you bringing with you? Let's see. I really like the first Yellow Magic Orchestra album. Yellow Magic Orchestra is a Japanese uh, group. Um, if you've heard NES or SNES video game music, it was very likely yes. inspired by Yellow Magic Orchestra from the 1970s. I'll send that to you after you send me Xanadu. You're going to be impressed. Hold the phone. So you're saying like Koji Kondo and like Nobu Mitsu and these guys, like they were, they were listening to this. This is like the precursor band. That's exactly what I'm saying. I will. Holy shit. Well, it's not like I, it's, uh, it's not impossible that they had these thoughts by themselves, but, uh, if it's truly impossible, everything is just a domino effect. We're all just following breadcrumbs from someone behind us yellow magic orchestra did it first i i i how have i not heard this band i mean that's amazing i want to hear all about this 
oh well like when you look them up you're gonna find that each of their videos has like six million views they are mega famous and, and yet i've never heard of them well everyone has to hear about something for the first time at some point i, mean, I yeah i guess but i i i want to hear proto nintendo music that because i mean you know who the first ever film music composer was wait hold on without I'm not googling, googling it. It. i'm trying to think of no i'm not going to guess it stravinsky camille saint-saint who's that he was a french composer from the late 19th century he wrote like le signe and he wrote a couple of operas and he's very much in like this this uh late romantic tradition and you know you would expect to hear his music at the opera or the ballet but at one of the world's fairs they came up with this like magic lantern show about traveling to outer space and he just wrote some music for it right but it's just somebody that like you wouldn't necessarily think of him as a film composer but then when you kind of look at the john williams and like the big broad sweeping movie scores of the 20s and 30s you're like okay yeah i can sort of see it now i can see that logical connection where i didn't see it before so i've i've built up in my mind's eye this yellow magic orchestra and i'm really looking forward to listening to that well speaking of adam uh when we were in school i actually lent him that album and he lent me stereo lab uh, as collateral <laughs> Has have you have you been has the exchange gone back the other way? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Way? Like it's it's not as though we had to send tough guys out for our albums or anything like that. But uh, no, I didn't think so. No, I enjoy I enjoyed the Stereo Lab. It was pretty good. Fantastic. Okay, okay. So Yellow Magic Orchestra is one. Is there is there another one that you can think of that's like uh you know? Oh, that's since, easy. Since you're you're laying all these art bombs on me, and I'm I'm very excited for it. Well, this one I'll be really surprised if you have heard of. It's a Toronto band from the 90s called The Look People. Uh, Kevin Hearn from the Bare Naked Ladies got his start with this band, but that doesn't mean you have to know who they are. They uh, they have an album called Boogasm. That's definitely coming to my desert with me, assuming I've got like a working stereo. It's um, Imagine if... Um, you know, I, I can't describe it. It's rock, it's prog, it's rock, and it's hilarious, and it's awesome. All right. I've got I've got my listening cut out for me. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I got a couple there that I want to check out. Um, if you know your Toronto jazz scene at all, James B. is no. the lead singer for uh, The Look People. I You know what? I don't really know my jazz scene. Okay. I don't know any jazz. Well, you you... I know... I. Like, like my jazz is like, I know about like, I think I listened to Cole Porter a couple times. And then one time um, I got these tickets to go see Herbie Hancock at nice. the NAC. I, he was great. I took my grandfather who knows absolutely nothing about jazz and like grew up in communist Hungary. And he was like, why are we paying so much? Why'd you pay so much to see this guy? He's just making it up as he's going along. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I mean that I'm not gonna say that was my mindset. I'd like to think I've I've kind of gone beyond that. No, you but hit the nail like... on the head. That's exactly what people paid the money for. That's exactly what they did. <laughs> yeah, but but he didn't mean it in a positive way, no. right? <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, I grew up with that mentality. So it's like it's kind of hard to unlearn that. But I, I appreciate jazz. I like the sound of it. I listen to it, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell you about the different veins or like who's in the scene or who's really good. Like the only Canadian jazz musician that I didn't know from Carleton University that I know off the top of my head is probably like 
Diana Krall. Okay. Right? Like, that's somebody. I've never listened to a single Diana Krall song, but I know who she is. I've listened to a few there, like, on the radio. Like, you've been to a shopper's, you know, it's on, (laughs) like, the speakers and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I know a lot of jazz musicians, and I I like their stuff. You know, I... uh, the one I probably listen to the most these days. I, did you ever know Justin Duhame over at Carlton? I don't think so. Did he play metal? He's he's a guitar. No, he's a guitar jazz guitarist, and he does a lot of stuff in the style of Django Reinhardt. No, I don't know the guy. Yeah, no, I, I mean he was one guy. Just to bring back to your uh, our our discussion about collaborating in the age of COVID, he put on a concert with like a four piece jazz band. And I don't know, it's some new platform that they were debuting that's like super new that it's like zero latency so that musicians can like collaborate in live space online. And I didn't get to go out to the concert because it just happened to be at a time when my kids are going to bed. So like my evenings are usually shot up until about like 8, 830 But it was something that was there. And it's like, oh, my God, we really can do this. There is a way that we can kind of collaborate in in the virtual space and actually you know feed off each other and do things sort of like how we used to do it in uh, in the real world so it was it kind of gave me hope that maybe we can see what music looks like on the web actually it's uh that's not a new idea uh it's there was a band called the Funk Dogs from 10 or so years ago that did exactly that the sax player was from Ottawa uh, the other guys were from Italy, the States, and the Philippines. It was a five-piece funk fusion band, uh, keyboard, guitar, bass, drums, and saxophone. Saxophone from the very good city of Ottawa. And uh, it sounds kind of like um, the Gran Turismo soundtrack. Gran Turismo is a race. That's a good soundtrack. A good, if you haven't played Gran Turismo, it's kind of like um, instrumental driving music, uh, instrumental garage music. So how did they do it 10 years ago? Were they just like calling each other on the phone or was it like multi-tracks or how did that uh, They would do live shows on YouTube exactly the same way you would do it now. The difference was it just cost more money because you didn't want your equipment to fail you because it was more likely to 10 years ago. Like a single lag would throw off an entire song. So you just had to make sure that your internet connection was like mint. Wow. I guess I hadn't thought about that. I mean – we are kind of sacrificing a lot of things. We're satisficing, I think, Ooh, is the that's word. That's good. Where a lot of it with our, well, a lot of it with our internet is just good enough. You know, I could get like a dedicated whatever T three connection to my house, and then I would never experience any lag. But do I really need to spend six hundred bucks a month to get that? No, probably not. And I'm hoping that we figure out some way to get around that because you know, I think we accept a certain level of latency with internet that we wouldn't with electricity. Like, can you imagine if you just had like four or five blackouts a week, the way that the internet just dies in your house without warning? Oh man, that would suck. It would totally suck, but things, things could be would worse. Be worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with these musical projects that you're working on, sort of collaborating with musicians, working on your own sort of, I don't, I don't want to call them parody songs or not parody songs, but sort of they have that comedic flavor to them. Like what, what do you see as sort of the ideal, like end goal with them? Like, do you want to, do you want to 
tour with them is is there an album in the works like like what 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 can i expect out of them or if anything if if there's something lo that lofty i'll be happy if they just get finished and if i put them out and people want to listen to them that's that's great for me touring uh i don't think anyone's ever going to pay to send me on tour so that's out of the cards and no one really buys albums anymore like people are all about one song at a time so i'm just going to do the same thing take it one song at a time if anyone wants to give me an embarrassing amount of money to take my music further i'm very happy to talk to that person about it but until then i'm happy with uh happy with just doing one song at a time i feel like you're eclectic enough that people would buy an album i feel like you're right we do live in the world of the spotify single but like if there's a if there's somebody that i'm very very passionate about they they have the, like you know the limited edition pressed vinyl with like the really sick cover art and then like a digital code on the back so you can download the mp3s like i i i feel like I feel like there's enough people that would feel very strongly about your music. Yeah, but if I put it out for free, which I'm doing already, then who's going to want to buy it when they can spend that money on something they need? That's 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 fair. That's fair. A lot of artists sort of feel very embittered by that. That that there's that there's sort of free people expect free art and free music, but then nobody expects sort of free groceries or free legal advice or something and you need, like that and you need your food and hopefully you won't but often you do need legal advice <laughs> no most oh, really? of it's bullshit most yeah. of it's very much bullshit well you know one of the problems is i have a hard time because i understand how the business works and i understand that you have to charge a certain amount and i understand why legal fees are so high and how a lot of it is based on regulation and this and that and the other. But at the same time, it's hard to kind of look someone in the eye and tell them that they're really getting value for money out of the things that they go to see a lawyer for. It's it's weird. It's weird. It's because I get it. I understand why it's so goddamn expensive. I understand why um, it's unaffordable for many people. But I also don't get it because I don't see why it has to be. And I feel like... There's a whole system built up around it just to make it unnecessarily expensive, if that makes sense. Well, well, the it's a specialist, uh, it's a specialized knowledge because, like, your average guy doesn't even read his contract when he downloads the new iTunes. Well, no one does. No one does. There, there's a part in it. <clears throat> someone published it. I think it was Maddox who published it online. Who said there's a part that says you agree you're not going to use your version of iTunes to make chemical weapons or like nuclear bombs or something like that. You know what? I uh, I've been really true to my iTunes contract. In case any iTunes lawyers are listening to this, I have not once. Do they even have iTunes anymore? I think they got rid of it. No, they have uh, iMusic then. iMusic. No. It's... No, Apple it's music? Apple. Apple Music. No. Uh... You're dating yourself because I loved iTunes. iTunes was the shit. They oh my got god, rid of you iTunes. did! I just uh, did a Control Tab to see what my music file is called. It's just called Music. It's not called iTunes anymore. Apple it's Music. Apple Music. They 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 realized that it was too confusing because iTunes was selling apps and podcasts and music and movies, and so they decided that they had to kind of split everything up into the aggregate as part of the new Apple ecosystem. And yet I still remember all those days of like downloading iTunes stuff onto my iPod classic. Like that, that those were the days. Man. Like, no, that can't be that old. Like when, when did that happen? Oh, that's, that's two years recent. ago. That's recent enough. I can get away with that.
Rel- at, least, at least I didn't recent. call relatively like my uh, my phone my Walkman or something like that. Palm <laughs> Your Palm Pilot. <laughs> oh no, I don't have any of those anymore. But, uh... Well, listen, I mean this this has been really fun. I'm really glad that I got a chance to to talk to you to keep up. Um, I'm using this podcast as a way to keep in touch with people that. I otherwise probably wouldn't just sit down for with an hour. You know, I wouldn't sit down and just have like a long phone call. Maybe I should, but for whatever reason, either social convention or what have you, we don't do it. But I'm really glad that I got a chance to chat with you, Dan. It's been too long and this was this was fun and I'm hopeful that it means that we'll keep in better touch I'll in the future. I'll definitely put in too. some effort. I really missed you too. If people want to, you know, they are intrigued by the things that you said or the music that we put out here on this podcast, is there a place online when they where they can find more of it? They can find more of the Dan Terrell oh, very experience. Very easily, just uh, three simple words combined into one word: coffee, jazz, dude. Coffee, jazz, dude. It's a guy who drinks coffee and listens to jazz. A coffee, jazz, dude. I'm on SoundCloud and on and on Reddit. That's where you can read my weird horror stories and listen to my bizarre music and you know where else your coffee cares dude and on chess.com yes i uh oh man i've been on chess.com in ages but that's still my username well i mean now thanks to the queen's gambit i was cool before the queen's gambit i was my dad and i we were watching chess videos ages before the queen's gambit Amen, brother. We we are chess hipsters to the bone, and I think that's one of a myriad of reasons why I I enjoy your company and we get along. Do you ever play a game called Go? So Catherine, my wife, has a cousin, Charles, nice. who's really into Go, and he said, you should try it. It looks really cool. And I bought this starter buck, and me and Kate were going to learn because she doesn't want to play chess with me because I always beat her at chess really easy just i've been doing it since i was 12 and she never really played it so i had a 20 year running head start so i figured this is a clean slate we'll both start at the same time but it's like now in my 30s i don't want to learn a new game i want to play the one that i'm already good at you know what i mean so i have to motivate myself i still have that like board that practice board and that like introduction to go but I just haven't I haven't done anything. I've been playing Go since I was uh, six years old. Go, I'm uh, way better at Go than I am at chess. Uh, You uh, you need to. It's like chess. You have to play with other players to get better. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, one I I say one of these days, but like realistically, like I'm more likely to get really good at Fortnite, which is probably what I'm gonna be uh, doing more more recently than Go. But one of these days, I may just pick it up if I've gotten frustrated with chess and given it up completely let's see what am i gonna do i have no idea what i'm gonna do (laughs) i'll probably i'm probably gonna i'm probably gonna pass out immediately after this podcast just because i'm usually woken up at 4 a.m so it doesn't make sense to stay up late at night i don't know about you i don't know what uh (laughs) <laughs> what what family life but, uh, is for you at home? It used to be that uh, we didn't get a complete night of sleep at all, like at all, and now I'm getting complete nights of sleep, so it's a really good change. Thank you. 
Congratulations. Uh, I'm really happy it for you. It That's didn't great. happen immediately. So like, don't, uh, don't worry. Maybe, maybe it'll happen for you too. <laughs> my, my kids are going to be two in April. I feel like if it hasn't happened now, it's not going to happen. Ooh, that's rough. Ooh. You got me beat there. <laughs> it, it, it is what it is, bro. And if one of them sleeps through the night, the other one wakes up. So it's like, you know what, what, what you of all people, like it could get worse. I could, Chop my uh, hand off. Serious tonight, right? question. Like, no, uh, you'll edit this out if you don't want your listeners to hear the answer. But uh, did you? I'm very. I'm. I'm an open book. You're gonna have anything. twins because I remember one day, like, um, I was scrolling through Facebook and you just said, "I have twins," and I'm like, "Oh, I'll like that comment." <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to do like the ultrasound for. It wasn't like they just fell out of my wife. It was like there wasn't. I didn't want to do like the whole announcing it and like posting and doing the whole bunch of things. That wasn't. That wasn't something that really interested me. I didn't do the gender reveal party or any of that stuff. It was literally we we knew we were expecting, and then there was some like kind of health things where Kate was worried she was having a miscarriage. And we went to the hospital and they couldn't find anything. And we kind of thought, well, maybe she lost a baby, whatever. And we went to the ultrasound clinic and they're like, they didn't see anything at Emerge. And we're like, no, nothing? No. Well, because there's two of them in there. And then we we found out when, when she was about, I think, two months along. And like, I was just floored. Like, that was the last time in my life where I was really just like hit with something, like a two by four over the face, like, oh. And and Kate just started crying, and I was like, "Are you, are those like happy tears?" And she's like, "I don't know." And it was it was a lot to process. I mean, I can't picture my life without him, but like, it was really, it was really quite a shock. And and Pierre Louis spent the uh, the first couple of weeks of his life at Chio. He had to have surgery right when he was born. So I mean, that was a little bit stressful. That was kind of freaking us out for the longest time, but in a weird kind of sick way the fact that Nicholas came home with us straight away and then he was with us for three weeks and we would go back and forth to Chi would look at his brother. And then at three weeks old, we got both of them at home. It was like, okay, we kind of got to ease ourselves into the deep end just a little bit. And then, and then by the time we had two, three week olds at home, that's when it was complete bedlam and like we are Good sleeping two hours at a time. Secret, not a secret, but from from keeping like uh, all your business away from social media because it's a very private moment, of course. Like, uh, and with social media, everyone's trying to like make all their private moments public. But I think that's very dignified how you just like kept it to yourself. You kept it you and your wife, and then like when you were ready, you told everyone, but you didn't make a huge deal about it. Yeah, like, uh, you know, my grandmother passed away in the summer, and that was really kind of hard for me and my mom and my grandpa. And it was like, people think, like, I post a shit ton on Facebook, and I post a shit ton on Reddit and Twitter and Instagram, and people just think that, like, I'm an open book online. But it's like, it's still curated. Like, anything that's meaningful to me, I'm not necessarily going to put online. Like, I post a lot of really what I would say are dumb things like you know a humorous observation on a news article or like a really funny you know banner ad that i get on a website or you know some musings that i have about the state of things in the world but that's but no different there, than there's what always you... some sorry i didn't mean to interrupt that's no different than what you would say to a person if he was right in front of you or if she was right in front of you yeah exactly like uh 
for me, it's like the internet of cooler talk. It's stuff that you would say at a water cooler. It's not like I'm not having a heart to heart with 954 of my closest friends. I agree with you 100% on that. Like I see posts and I, and, uh, I won't be specific just because I don't want to like uh, tell people how to live their lives on Facebook. But I do see a lot of posts where I'm thinking, why would you tell everyone that? Yeah, yeah. I had a whole stand up bit about one of my ex-girlfriends who um, basically her sister worked at a McDonald's where she's from out in the States. And this ex-girlfriend of mine applied to be at the same McDonald's as her sister. And she got an interview and then she didn't get the job. And like, I mean, I was, I felt sorry for her. I'm like, it's okay. These things happen. And then she made this big Facebook post about like, didn't get the job at McDonald's fucking looking for work sucks. And like, I was like, Oh my God, why are you telling people that that's not, you don't want to brag about that. That's not like, why are you? But then to my surprise, there was like all these people who were just jumping on to be like, you got this Han, like it's all bullshit out there anyway. And, and this one guy who's like, I didn't get a job at Walmart or Lowe's or the home Depot either. I guess it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, well, that's always going to be true, I guess. That's nothing compared to, like, um, I saw a Top 10s video uh, by Matthew Centaro, the dumbest uh, Facebook posts uh, that he knew about. And the top one was these two guys, uh, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, robbed a bank. They got away with it. And they got caught when they photographed themselves on Facebook with the stacks of the cash. And you can see the serial numbers. There was this one really way, way, way back in the early days of Facebook where... Um this woman in the UK wrote like, oh, I hate, I have to go into work on Monday. My boss is such a pervy wanker. And <laughs> oh, it, tur no. it turns out she, it's like, hi, Julie, I guess you forgot that you added me as a Facebook friend. I don't really consider myself a pervy wanker. Um, you know, for one thing, I'm gay. So I'm, trust me, you're not my type. However, this is pretty inappropriate behavior posting us on Facebook. So you know what? Don't bother coming in on Monday. My favorite one is from Australia, where the police had a Facebook post saying, like, we're looking for this guy last seen at this place. Here's his most recent mugshot. And the guy couldn't resist. He posted on the, uh, the police wall, that picture of me is terrible. Can you update it? The reply they gave him was, absolutely, just come to the station. We'll take a brand new photo for you. And they tracked him using the location tracker. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I mean, Facebook is the ultimate surveillance tool. It uh, it's really supplanted a lot of like sort of tracking tools that we used for a hundred years to try and find people. It's fantastic, and everyone's cool with it too. Every everyone's just volunteering information. They're just pouring in all this metadata so people can track your every movement and where you are at all times. And then you've got AI where it's like, it's a really cool thing we've developed, but everyone's telling the AI their secrets and then freaking out that the AI knows all their secrets. Yeah, like Google Home probably knows all my fears and like what pressure points would kill me. And and yeah, I still use it to like tell me how to hard boil an egg. That's an inch. I, uh, have you actually asked Google Home where the pressure points that could kill you are? No, and I'm okay, speaking okay, in okay. hyperbole, but yeah, I would be curious what, what kind of answer it would give me.
No, because uh, my cousin, he had uh, one of the first uh, prototypes of Google Google Home, and uh, one New Year's Eve, we uh, we we uh, we drank some beer and we tested it out. We asked him some really weird questions, and uh, I'm sure that was one of the ones we asked. Which pressure points can kill you? That, I think that's the perfect sort of segue to to end the podcast. Okay, on. okay. I gotta I gotta find out what pressure points can kill me, and maybe I'll post an addendum to this. But Dan, I had so much fun doing this. Let's please try and keep in touch. Yo, really good talking to you, Antonio. Have a really nice night. I'll let you, I'll leave you to it. All right, thanks, buddy. And just like that, another episode is in the can. Thank you so much, Dan, for sitting down and chatting with me. I had a great time, and I loved listening to his music, and that Yellow Magic Orchestra that he told me about, that is a cool band. I, If you feel like listening to 70s Japanese electronic funk proto-video game music, you need to check that out, because it is awesome. Um, he's always really had this... I don't want to call it a joie de vie, but a very, very unique perspective. And I like that idea of just being hopelessly optimistic or maybe being realistic that things can always be worse. It really matters what angle you're looking at it from. I think generally I've got a lot of negative self-talk and I think a lot of other people listening to this podcast probably do too. Um, So when you're looking at that kind of a perspective. I think saying things can always be worse is a way of trying to ground yourself. Or maybe that's just how I'm approaching it. I mean, everything is really a matter of perspective at the end, but that was something that sort of reverberated with me throughout this. You can have a fear about your car not working properly. You can have a fear about all sorts of stress and problems that you can have in your life, but at the end of the day, a lot of it sort of just comes down to how you can sit with it in the moment and how much you are desperately trying to change things to be different than the way they are. So on that bombshell, it's time for us to end. Thank you so much for listening and hopefully I'll check in with you next week. Who Cares If You Listen is a podcast produced by me, Antonio Jambardino. The opening credits are performed by me and written by me. The closing credits are based on a menuet by Otto Reno Respighi and also played by me, badly, on my Techniques KN1400. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast, that's nice. 